Awesome. We are in uh, chapter 15, The Shepherd and the Wolf. It sounds like a children's book, but it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's real, and it's it's serious. But Mike, I really do appreciate that. Even though he doesn't really make the point in this chapter, he has done it in some other chapters, this should be introspective, right? So we're reading these things, and I, I think the temptation is to go, yep, I know someone like that. Yeah, I've met someone who's done those things. It ought to be introspective. Am I demonstrating some of these characteristics, which are not Christ-like? which are uh, dangerous and, and d- destructive to the Lord's church, um, I don't, I don't want to be a wolf to someone. Uh, we want to be, be those that are helping to build up and, and strengthen the church rather than, than tear it down. He starts this chapter, and, and I appreciated how he approached this because it's a question that was on my mind as I read it. He says, I guess I just don't know the difference between someone who needs discipline and someone who is just being disagreeable. This honest acknowledgement coming from the heart of a shepherd who is completely stymied by a situation that was crying out for discipline reflects one of the major causes of inaction by elders slash shepherds when discipline is clearly required. Uncertainty about who is really a wolf a special category of people who require discipline by the church. We are often so fearful of disciplining inappropriately that, regrettably, we do nothing at all, often with tragic consequences. And that really was my, my question going into this chapter. How, how, do, you, how do you differentiate between a, uh, someone who's just being maybe disagreeable Someone who maybe just has a different opinion than others, and someone who is described, as the scriptures say, as as a wolf. Someone who is is, uh, posing a threat to to the flock. I want to say at the outset, this chapter is not about identifying who a wolf is so that we can go around and slap labels on a bunch of people. That's not what this book is about. That's not what the scriptures is about, where I can go, false teacher, false teacher, wolf, wolf. No. What is, what is it about? Restoration. Restoration. And holiness. Holiness. I would say it's, it's about restoration. That's absolutely true. It's about holiness. It's about the safety of the flock is specifically what we're talking about here. And in regards to the, the role of the shepherds and, and the role that they play in making sure that the flock stays safe from danger. And the danger isn't what we would normally think about uh, physical danger. We obviously, we take steps to make sure that, you know, uh, people aren't going to be harmed when they come here to worship, but the, the, the shepherd's primary uh, responsibility is to make sure that spiritually we are fed, that we're growing, that we can feel um, appreciated and, and, and provided for here, and that we will not be, our spiritual health will not be put in danger. So let's start 
page 187. Let's talk about first what a wolf is not. What were some of the points that he made in the book? And I think before we start talking about what the scriptures teach a wolf is, because they're real and we can identify them, we need to take some time. What is a wolf not? David. Someone who's new in the faith that just needs to grow. Right. He says, a wolf isn't an immature Christian who needs to grow. It should come as no surprise that when someone first comes to faith, they respond to the gospel, they put on Christ, that they're going to have some ideas from their previous life that are going to take some time to kind of work out. Some, some aspects of their life that, that need changing, but they may not know from the moment they come up out of the water, yep, all that's got to go and all this has got to be put on and I know exactly what that looks like in my life. No, there's going to need to be some, some patience and some grace as those immature Christians learn and grow. And we don't want to say, oh, wow, they're saying these kind of off-base things. Maybe they're coming in from a a different religious persuasion and they're saying things that the scriptures don't teach they're not doing it maliciously they're they're doing it in ignorance we're not going to slap them with the label of wolf and say get out of here the sheep are in danger no what should we do teach them teach them them. work with them help them restore them um, th- this is about doing for them what we hope they would do for us if the roles were were reversed. Couldn't help but think of Apollos. And he was talking about that. Yeah. You know, um, uh, obviously he was preaching, but yet still, I mean, even th- the whole kingdom at that point was still relatively new, right, right in the message. And um, so uh, Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and you know they didn't lambast him as a as, as a wolf they took right. him aside and and uh, taught him yeah so that he could correct a few things that needed to be corrected a little bit yeah and <clears throat> you know what what the what the scriptures talk about that is that should that must be our approach to begin with we should not go 0 to 60 oh you're a wolf false teacher get him out of here but there will, there may come times where even after attempting to study and, and reason that this person is going to demonstrate characteristics that are going to require something else, a different approach. But it needs to start with that. It needs to start with that. We don't approach the person and go, my, what big teeth you have. We, we sit down and we go, okay, help me understand. I think it always should start with a question. Help me understand I'm hearing this from you. Do you mean this? Or maybe am I misunderstanding you? Help me. Help me. I, I'm seeing this kind of attitude as you're interacting with me and with others. And it's coming across to me as this way. Am I misunderstanding you? You start with giving them the benefit of the doubt. Eventually, it may become very obvious that their motives are not pure. Their attitudes are not Christ-like. Their teaching is not true and then what do we do? What, what else? What is a wolf not? It's not an immature Christian. We kind of segued into it a little bit in that discussion, right? But a person that, just because they disagree with you doesn't mean that they're a wolf. Right. Right. There are going to be things 
that we may disagree about. Now, and we talked about this in the, the lesson about false teachers. When it comes to clearly communicated doctrinal issues, we, we can't just disagree about those things. We need to study together to come to God's, God's one truth. But there are going to be times where the Scripture doesn't, doesn't specify. What, what time should we meet on Sundays? Well, 9.30 is clearly the time that the apostles met in the first century, and if you try to do something differently, I'm going to get up in your face about it. We may have a disagreement about that. How often do we meet? How, how long should the service be? I'm not going to label that person as a wolf. He says in this section, All of us should study and restudy Paul's words in Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7 to learn how to disagree in the Lord while continuing to love one another within the same body. There are a host of things about which we might disagree. None of them is unimportant, but not all are so important as to lead to division or require discipline. And he gave a, a few examples in Romans 14. One of the key things that kind of keeps coming back up in the first century was this idea of, of eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. And to some Christians, that was that was blasphemy. It was heresy. It was, it was the same as if I had partaken of the worship service to that idol. And they felt convicted of that. To some people, like Paul, he said it, it doesn't mean anything. Because the idols aren't anything. And so you can eat whatever you want. God's made everything clean. And there's a disagreement here. Paul says... That This person isn't a wolf that's got to be taken care of right away. This is someone who study about it, talk to each other about it, and then you may realize that for the sake of that weaker brother, I may give up meat. For the sake of that, that person with that, that different opinion than mine, I may alter my behavior so as not to put a stumbling block. But just because we disagree does not inherently make them a wolf. What was the third thing that he pointed out? This is on page 188. A wolf isn't a troublesome member who needs constant maintenance. A wolf isn't a troublesome member who needs constant maintenance. He says, I'll never forget the words of a wise elder who once said concerning a particular member... We all know he's a perpetual maintenance problem. While every Christian should make certain he doesn't fall into that category, again, introspection, every church has people who, due to their own lack of diligence, constantly need to be checked up on, encouraged to do better, and urged to become more involved in the ministries of the church that will help their spiritual growth. Some people often require a great deal of patience, but they aren't wolves. I'm interested to know your thoughts on this next paragraph. I like the, uh, the point I want to make is the second half of this paragraph, but I'm going to read the whole thing. Someone has said that there are always three groups within any church, sheep, goats, and wolves. The sheep are willing to be led and usually create no difficulties for the leaders. The goats are difficult, but not destructive people. But wolves are those whose attitudes, actions, and or teachings are genuinely destructive and who refuse correction. It's important for shepherds of God's church to know the difference. 
I'm always hesitant to use that sheep and goats analogy because the only time we see that in the scripture is when God's doing what? Separating them. Some of them are going to eternal damnation and some of them are going... So I'm always like, eh, yeah, I'm not going to necessarily say you're all being a bunch of goats right now. But I, it, 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 but I see his point and I think I agree. There are some people, I don't think he's saying they're a sheep and they're never a problem, they're perfect flawless. No, but I I think he's saying, in general, these are people who are genuinely good-hearted. They're willing to accept instruction and follow the the leadership of of that local church. Um, The goats are difficult, but not destructive. Uh, Maybe we know people like that. Maybe we are or have been people like that. And again, introspection if, I, if I'm being honest with myself, when I communicate and interact with other people, what, what's their impression of me? Do I come with these really strong opinions and I'm, I'm not willing to listen to any, anyone else's take on that? Or do I come uh, very disagreeable and complaining more than I commend? Um, did I see a hand over here? Yeah, I was just going to say that the goats in that context uh, sometimes are needed as well to keep to keep things healthy. Sure. Because um, we definitely wouldn't want to create a culture where people couldn't feel like they can't question why. Yes. Or can't ask why we can't do this instead of that. Because those are growing moments. Those are moments that can cause faith to increase and like you just mentioned, involvement yes. um, to increase. Yes. The church, here's another Star Trek reference, the church is not the Borg, right? Everyone remember? No. Assimilation is futile. Come on, guys. Oh, man. Brian, help me You're out. Here, out Seriously? <laughs> the Borg was an artificial intelligence that roamed the galaxy and overtook entire civilizations and made them exactly uniform with themselves. And you could not resist. And when they were done with you, you looked and acted just like the rest of the Borg. We've got some work to do, guys. <laughs> That's not the church. That's not the church in the sense of we all need to look the same, we all need to act the same, and dress the same, and talk the same. What do we need to be the same on, though? What actually unifies us? One in, Christ. one in Christ. We need to conform to the image of Christ. Now, we may do that in English. We may do that in Arabic. We may do that in French. We may do that dressed a certain way. As long as the objective is to conform to Christ, that, that may look different. That may sound different to, to each of us. And you're absolutely right. God does not want blind faith. He doesn't want blind faith in him. He certainly does not require blind faith in our church leaders. He wants us to be willing to ask questions. How we ask those questions to our leaders, I think, is important. We shouldn't approach them and say, now, come on. Why are we, or I think, you know, what kind of tone are we using? Why are we asking the question? And what kind of heart are we genuinely asking a question with the idea of, look, I may feel about it this way, but let's look in the scriptures together, and it may say, I, I shouldn't feel that way, or I shouldn't believe that thing, and I, 
I need to be willing to submit to that. Um, and I don't know, I don't know that I would necessarily call those people goats. Um, God wants us to know why we believe what we believe. And God wants us to know why we do the things that we do. Sometimes we do the things that we do even when they don't make full, perfect sense to me simply because God told me to do them. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Baptism doesn't make perfect sense in my brain. We are somehow recreating the, the bloody death of, of someone 2,000 years ago and, and going in water and coming out removes sins. If, practically speaking, because I've tried to explain that to other people and they go, that, that sounds crazy. Depending on how you look at it, I, I can see the parallels God tries to make in Romans 6. I can, I can see the examples we have throughout the book of Acts. And I know it's necessary. God told me to do it. Do I have to have a perfect full understanding and be in perfect agreement before I obey? No. I need to obey because God says so. Because his teachings are clear. And I think that that is, is, is part of being a church body as well. I spent far too much time on that intro. Let's maybe move forward a little quicker. How to spot a wolf. They're going to come in with, with teeth and claws. They're going to be disruptive. We can hear them. You know, once, once worship uh, finishes and the prayer is said, I can hear their voice over everybody else's voice because they're yelling and arguing in the corner. Is, is that how wolves are described in the New Testament? Let's read a few passages. Let's read a few passages, starting with... Hmm. Well, let's start with the passage in Acts where this term is actually used, right? And we've read this numerous times. This is when Paul is meeting with the elders of Ephesus. He's giving them this warning. He says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So your comment... Are, we, are, are they going to have sharp teeth? Are we going to hear them? We might. We might. Because here, that's the image I get when, he, when I hear <clears throat> savage wolves coming in. Right. So this is not a wolf dressed up, dressed up in sheep's clothing here. It doesn't seem to be. That's correct. In this, in this, in this particular instance, passage. I think, yes, I think the other is also true, but I think it could be that someone comes in and immediately we know this is a problem. Yes. Have you been in those classes? I, I've, I've been in a few where uh, a visitor came in. They actually weren't a member of, of that local group, but a visitor came in and they were just chucking these moral ambiguous question grenades into the class just to kind of see, see how it all went. They weren't necessarily offering any teaching. They just wanted to see what happened. 
I would categorize, I think the scriptures would categorize that person as a wolf because they are being divisive, they're being destructive, and they're being harmful. They're, it's not that the questions are always inappropriate, but the heart behind the question and the means in which they're doing that is, is destructive. He does. He calls them fierce wolves. And he says they're going to come in among you, not sparing the flock. They're not going to make differentiation here. That's, that's terrifying. Because it means that none of us are immune or, or exempt from being drawn away by individuals like this. But he says in, in verse 31, to be alert. These are going to be individuals, some from without, potentially some from within, who are going to speak twisted things to draw away the disciples, not after Christ, but after themselves. So he says, be alert. Some of these other passages that are going to say, be watchful. Um, You may not notice them right away. Some of them may be very obvious, but some of them we're going to need to really honestly evaluate what... Uh, what is the result of their teaching? What about... uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. He makes a point in the book uh, specifically related to this first section that in James chapter 3 and verse 1 through James 4 and verse 12, uh, based on this idea of there were going to be men arising who who will speak twisted things, that James gives this long exhortation and warning about the dangers of the tongue. I think the majority of the danger that's going to come from these wolves are going to be the things that they say. Because words have power. And we can either do great good with words or we can do great harm. And so James warns them um, to be mindful about how the tongue is used. Let's go to 3 John 9, and let's look at a specific example. I mean, he, he pulls no punches. He mentions this person by name, which I believe is appropriate at times. In uh, 3 John verse 9, he says, I have written something to the church. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God based on this description of this individual, how, how would you describe him? What kind of character traits are we, are we seeing in him? Arrogant. Arrogant. Domineering. Domineering, yeah. He's, he's trying to take control. Or it sounds like he's taken control. Right? He's a liar. What's that? He's a liar. He's, he's a liar? Yeah, the ESV says wicked nonsense. Are there other translations? Maybe add some clarity to that. 
Uh, that's in verse 10. Yeah, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, malicious words. Hmm. Okay. Slander really is what's being described there, right? He's speaking evil about someone else. Um, typically, that's done uh, not to their own face. Usually, it's done behind the person's back or when they're not there. And not content with that, as if that weren't bad enough, and I. Well, we talked about this in the last class I taught, uh, or one of the classes I taught, and the idea was, you know, you had traveling teachers that were coming through. Yeah. And traveling preachers. And he was not receiving them, and he was not allowing them to come in, and he was even forbidding the rest of the congregation to show hospitality to them. And if they chose to do that, then he was kicking those people out of the church. Why so Why was, would someone do that? Like, that just seems... That just seems okay. He made himself a gatekeeper. Power trip, yeah. It made him. He got to determine who came through, who got to teach, and he clearly he, he didn't seem he wanted anybody to teach except him. Not even John. Someone who refuses to let other people do good, if it's not their idea, it seems. It, because it wasn't his idea, because he wasn't the one doing it, he didn't want it happening. Is that really how the kingdom of God is going to grow? If we know that there's good that needs to be done, and we can do it in a godly way, but we see somebody else doing it first, it wasn't my idea, let, let, him, let him do it. Encourage them, exhort them, you know, that's great. Go for it. Maybe join them. But never, never should we, should we hinder people from, in this particular case, it seems to be referring to these kind of traveling preachers. He's hindering people from spreading the gospel of all things. That, that should never be. That should never be. So he categorizes it like this. He had his own agenda for the church. He wanted things to go his way. And it didn't matter what, what anyone else said, even an apostle. He didn't acknowledge any authority but his own. He used slander to discredit those who disagreed with him. That sounds extreme, but we probably do that more often than we realize. Someone comes to us with a contrary opinion or an idea that we don't like. How tempted are we to ignore the argument and go straight for the person? I think especially when someone's coming to us perhaps uh, criticizing some of our behavior, challenging us with something that we're doing. Is there the temptation? I, I don't think, surely it's just me, that we go, yeah, but there was one time where you or you haven't always been so friendly to visitors or uh, and we bypass the argument and we go straight to the individual. Um, that, that, that should not be done. Let's go to Titus 3. Let's look at the next one. We're, we're, we're blowing through this. If, if 
there are questions or comments, by all means, uh, shout them out. Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. It says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, we're hearing a different tone here than I think some of these other passages. What we, what we uh, just previously read in, in 3 John, uh, John mentions this guy. He talks about what he's going to do, but John didn't necessarily give them any instruction or an example of what to do with a person like this. But Paul here is communicating to Titus what should be done with someone who causes division. What does he say? Or who stirs up division. And this, this, right, and this is not like a boxing match where you go one, two, you're like, I don't know, that's the closest sports item. Do they do that? It's more than two, but um, <laughs> you, don't, you don't go, hey, I warned him, and then five minutes later I warned him again, and he didn't quit, so knowing what we've already discussed in previous chapters. Well, let me start with this question. The characteristics that we've already seen described of these individuals, are they sinful or are they godly characteristics? You're talking about someone who slanders, someone who's preventing people from doing good work, someone who's not recognizing the authority of God. Are these sinful behaviors or godly behaviors? Okay, what do we do with a brother or sister that we notice sinful behaviors with? What should we do? Go to them. And we don't go to them so that we can drop that hammer first. I I read these passages like, knowing what we know should be done with someone that we believe is is acting in a way that is not aligned with Christ. The objective isn't to try to get them out of here as quickly as possible. The objective here is restoration. I want to help them first. I may see... As we're talking here, I may see that their attitudes and their actions are harming other people. And we need, to, we need to do what we can for that. We'll help both of these groups of people if I go to that person and try and get them to, to change. Try and get them to see the truth. And I'm going to do that with, with patience and kindness and thoughtfulness. But if this person, as it seems in verse 10, is someone who makes a habit here of stirring up division... And you warn them, look, what you're doing, dropping those grenades for no reason other than to see people squirm. What are you, what are you doing? You're, you're bringing up this idea and you're not even yourself fully convinced of the thing, but it's starting to create a rift. Can, can you see this? And the person says, it, does, it doesn't matter, I don't care. And I don't want to study about it. To me, I think that's um, 
I don't know if I'd say that's the, that's the one true sign of a difference between a, a sheep and a wolf, but I think it's a huge red flag. When a brother or sister in Christ refuses to study about it anymore, what does that typically indicate? It could indicate several different things now that I think of it. Their mind is closed. I think it could indicate a stubbornness. Their mind is closed. They've already decided, and they don't want to talk about it anymore. I would say, even though they may not admit it, if you really believe the thing that you're touting, you should be willing to defend it against anyone, right? If you really believe it's the truth, if you really believe that God created the heavens and the earth, you should be willing to discuss it with those that think it took a bajillion years. But if you're unwilling to do that, what is that usually an indicator of? I'm not actually fully convinced of this thing. So I think it could indicate a stubbornness. I think it could indicate deep down inside they themselves aren't even fully convinced of it. But either way, Paul tells Titus to do what with this individual? Warn them. Exhort them. Give them a couple of shots here. Try to reason with them. And what if they don't? What if they don't? Yeah, I don't know how it's translated with everyone's. Uh, ESV says, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. That's harsh. That's harsh stuff. I think we have to keep in mind that this is, and he's talking about this in the section about a wolf, right? And this says in verse 10, reject a divisive person or a divisive man, the person that is trying to divide, the person that is that is is actually there's there's a, an effort there to get others to to believe what he believes. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just the person that, you know, we've you know, we've got two hundred people here at Avon, and I guarantee you I know there are people that don't agree with me on certain things or maybe probably don't even agree with you on certain things. No doubt. But they're not trying to teach it and preach it and bring others to their side right. to do that, right? Right. And so that, that kind of goes to that, fa- that that idea of, you know, we, we may disagree on some things. It doesn't mean that we can't study about it, but we may disagree on some things, but we can still have this unity and still worship together. So there is an element of a person being divisive along with this that I think takes it over that edge. Agreed. And that... How would you see that demonstrated? What might you hear or see in that individual that we would say that you you've crossed you've crossed a line here from simply holding a different position. Now you're being divisive. What what does that look like? What Maybe could that look like? People on your side uh, to to get them to maybe believe your viewpoints or thoughts behind the scenes, you know, having people over and saying, hey, don't you think we need to, you know, and just kind of getting a, a private group together to go up against, you know, the, the rest of the congregation or other groups or whatever. Okay, yeah. I think it's going to be heart and attitude. Heart and attitude, yeah. right? Yeah. 
I was just going to say along with what Josh was saying, every um, church division I've ever witnessed, it's always happened that way. It's people talking among themselves in homes, on the phone, in little huddles, and that's why it seems to explode out of nowhere for people who aren't involved in the various huddles that... Um, it all, it yeah. almost always seems to come out of left field be, because groups have been talking for a long time. Right. And maybe to play devil's advocate, can we find a different term for that? Um, maybe to come at it from a different perspective. What if I realize in my study with Mike that he and I hold a different position on something? Spoiler alert, we do. <laughs> and, and I'm confused. I, I'm struggling with it. I'm trying to decide for, my, for myself. What, what, is, what is the truth here? Am I seeing this wrong? Is Mike seeing this wrong? I'm probably going to talk to Karen about it. I'm probably maybe going to bounce it off of a few people that I respect, people who are older and wiser than me, not necessarily in a, Mike believes this, and I think that's nuts. Can you, like, no, but... Okay, I, I've been studying such and such. I don't even need to mention that I've got a disagreement with a brother or sister. I've been studying such and such. Have you studied this before? Do you have some notes or some thoughts that you could share with me? What, what passages come to your mind? There are going to be small groups, I think, that, that do that. And I don't think, again, it comes back to the heart and, and the attitude about it. I, I think that that could be productive. But I do think you're right. It could also be divisive, where I disagree, perhaps, and I think that if I can find more people that agree with me than agree with Mike, I'm sorry, Mike, then I think I've won the argument. Is that how we determine truth? I think we've mentioned this in the class before, right? If I can get more of the congregation to side with me, no, guys, that's how the Senate and the House work in this country, and that's... that. Anytime the church starts looking like the federal government, we need to take a step back. No that's not, that's not how God says his church is supposed to run. Because then I get enough people, and then we all bring it forward, and then we perhaps take a vote on it. That, that's, not, that's not how truth was determined. You look at Acts chapter 15. When there was a severe disagreement between Christians about circumcision... I would guess that there were probably far more Pharisees, Jewish Christians, who held to the law of Moses, at least in those early years of, you know, it came from Jerusalem, than there were, it sounds like, than just Paul, who was fighting for the truth and saying, I don't believe that that's true. They then took it back, and what did they do? They searched the scriptures. They looked at present-day uh, approved examples. Look, I went over here, Peter said, and I preached to Gentiles and God sent the Holy Spirit. Seems to be pretty clear. So they used examples and said, look, here are things that have been carried out. You talk about the Ethi- I don't know if they brought up the Ethiopian eunuch. Here are these Gentiles that we've already done that with. And then they just used common sense. The apostles there in Acts 15 said, you know, Basically, they were saying that the logic, logical conclusion here is this. Uh, but it should not be 
we're gathering in, in a corner here and I heard something that I don't disagree with and yeah, what do you think about that? I, yeah, I think there's a problem here. If I hear someone teaching something that I disagree with, whether it's from the pulpit or it's from here or it's in the hallway here at church and I've heard something from someone else that I don't think is true or scriptural or biblical, what should I do first? I would say go to them and ask some questions. Because sometimes you may realize you misunderstood them. Sometimes you may ask questions and they go, oh wow, did I say that? Like that's not what I meant. Um, I don't believe there's a lot of value or scriptural precedent for hearing something that we think is, is untrue. And maybe we think they're a wolf. And then we go over to this group and talk about it. I believe that's an example of being divisive. Because I'm trying to divide the group that agrees with me with the group that doesn't. Now before we run out of time, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping ahead. <clears throat> There, there are, are several other passages. Many of them we've already read. Um, but I would encourage you, if you have the time, in that email that I sent, to go back through and, and read those. But he, he has, in, on page 195, a portrait of a wolf. I thought about drawing one on the whiteboard, but there's a lot of time to spend for a punchline. <laughs> are they going to come in dressed like a wolf. They're going to have the ears and the teeth and the claws. Not usually. Not usually. Now, and I, th- I think I know where you're coming from. Sometimes you can spot them. Right. right. Sometimes you can spot them. Sometimes they are being disruptive and destructive and maybe they don't even, they don't wake up in the morning thinking, I'm going to split this church if it's the last thing I do. I've never met anybody like that. I haven't. But I have met some divisive people who in their minds, what they were trying to do was find truth. But the means in which they were doing it was destructive and divisive. And their stubbornness to not actually want to study about it, they'd already kind of made up their minds. The scriptures would classify that person as a wolf. Let's read this last paragraph right before the for thought and discussion and and see time-wise where we're at. He says, As all of the texts we have examined revealed, it's vitally important for someone to confront the wolf whenever it threatens the flock. And Jesus said that's the job of a shepherd. Those who find themselves in this role or who contemplate being in it need to accept confronting wolves as simply part of the job at hand. And they must educate those whose souls are in their care about the need for disciplining people who refuse to repent when confronted. Their concern isn't just budgets, buildings, and meetings. It's shepherding. And there will be times when every shepherd will have to confront the wolf. When this is done lovingly and consistently as required, 
the church will be spared a great deal of trauma and loss. In fact, many won't even know it has occurred. But they will be blessed by the peace and security that comes from having shepherds who truly watch over their souls and to know a wolf when they see one and refuse to run. And I I take that last phrase as um, I, I don't know of, of any elders that have seen disruptive behavior and like, we're moving. But what might they be tempted to do? What did he talk about at the beginning of the chapter? Ignoring. Sit yeah. back yeah. and do nothing. Oh, are they really a wolf? Yeah, I mean, I've known them for a long time. I mean, they've done all these really good things. <clears throat> this point is, is, uh, needs to be made before the class is out. He lists these five things, these, uh, you know... Uh, how does he call it? A portrait of a wolf. I think it's important to note that those five things are based on the variety of passages that we read. One need not be guilty of all five for us to identify who they are and what they're doing. They may be a brilliant Bible student who knows the truth, and they may still be a very divisive person. They may create division and confusion either by teaching error or by uh, insisting on discussing some pointless issue, but they may not necessarily be doing it because they're, they're prideful and they want all the attention. We don't need to look at this list and go, well, I mean, they're not all five of those, so surely they're not a harm or a danger to the church. Is that true? And I also, again, need to put myself in here and go, am I, am I doing the, these things? Will I disregard or seek to undermine the duly appointed leadership of a church in order to have my own way? And again, I'm not saying don't ever question them, and don't, but do that in a godly way, in a humble way, in a submissive way, because we're told to submit to them. Am, am I one of these things? And if so, how would I hope that the eldership or anyone would come and approach me? Shoo, wolf! Get out of here! No, I would hope that as brothers and sisters who love each other and want, above all things, this, this unity and fellowship in Christ that only exists in this beautiful way in, in the church, there's nothing else like it that we would want to preserve that, whether they're coming to us or we're coming to them. And it also means that we want to preserve that. And so if we approach someone and they're not willing to study or change, they're not willing to recognize their disruptive behavior, the elders need to step up and step in and protect the flock. And again, I, I want to commend those who take on that job. Um, it, it certainly cannot be easy. Let's, as much as we can, um, not be the kind, of, <laughs> the kind of people that may be categorized as wolves and need to be treated as such. Well, and I think, Greg, I think that's why, you know, with what we've got coming up with the financial study, right? There are some people that ha- that that question and, and have questions. They've been mm-hmm. doing some study, right? They've got some questions, and instead of I think just saying that we're going to have our own way or we're going to go our own way and you know do our own thing, 
they went to the elders. They talked to the elders about it, and they said, we think that we need some study on this. Mm -hmm. And there's enough people that we think could benefit that let's study it as a group. And I think that that's the way things like that need to be done yes. instead of this, like you say, gathering in groups and saying, well, we're going to form our own little group, and, and our goal is going to be to take over this Right, right, and I would, if we haven't, uh, if we, if all of us, commend each other to go to these. I, I think this is only going to be as truly as effective as the elders intended to be if we all go and study together. Because what might happen is the people who already have an opinion stay home. Because I already know this, I got this, you know. No, let's, let's all go, let's all go and study it's about what this says, whatever this says. And that means I might need to change my opinion on something. It might mean that we've got the truth and we need to hang on to it because some may try to influence it towards something that isn't biblical. So let's all go. Let's all go very much so. Um, the next chapter is all of the questions that we didn't answer up until now. And that will be so easy. <laughs> Um, we might take two classes to do that so I can save some of those good ones Thank for you. Thank you very much. <laughs>